Hi, this is Kara Oakleaf, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud with Christina Thompson. Christina Thompson is the author of Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia, which won the 2019 NSW Premier's General History Award and the 2020 Victorian Premier Literary Award. Her first book, a memoir entitled Come on Shore and We Will Kill and Eat You All, was shortlisted for the 2019 NSW Premier's Literary Award and the 2010 William Soroyan International Prize for Writing. A dual citizen of the United States and Australia, she was born in Switzerland and grew up outside Boston. She received a BA from Dartmouth College and a PhD from the University of Melbourne. Since the year 2000, she's been editor of the Harvard Review, a recipient of fellowships from the NEA and the Australian Council, as well as a 2015 NEH Public Scholar Award. She teaches writing at Harvard University Extension and lives outside of Boston with her husband and three sons. Christina, welcome and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for inviting me. You've been the editor of the Harvard Review for the last 20 years. How has your work as an editor shaped your own writing? Gee, has it been that long? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my work as an editor has been very influential on my teaching. Uh, I've learned to teach, I think, partly by being an editor. In terms of my writing, um, I think I pay a lot of attention to what... I might, you know, watch out for as an editor. I mean, I kind of see a lot of things that I think are wrong in other people's work. So it makes me rather, it makes me alert to what might be wrong with mine. But it is also kind of difficult to see your own flaws. Thinking about the, the new book, um, Sea People looks at the long history of the Polynesian Triangle. And it's a different kind of story than your first book, which in, involves that history, but it's also a memoir. What were some of the differences in writing from these two different approaches? Yes, that's an interesting question. The The first book, I originally started off writing the first book thinking that I would write about the history of contact in New Zealand. So I really was interested in historical questions. And I realized when I was writing the book that I needed some way to hold it together. I needed to hang those history pieces on something else. And more and more, I began to realize that the story, my own personal story of going to the Antipodes, living there, meeting my husband and all of that was really the backbone of the book. And I hadn't seen that originally. So I had to learn that. When I then, um, having, having learned how to put that together with the two strands and to sort of weave them, because that's one of those, you know, kind of braided books, I then thought, oh, now I figured out how to do that. I'm going to do that again. So when I went to write my next book, I started off thinking, okay, I'll do that again. And then I realized that that was impossible because the material of the second book is so big. The timeline is so long. The geography is so enormous. The scope of the book is just so, so, so vast that what happened was that my own personal story just it just kind of disappeared. It just paled in comparison. So I thought this isn't a story about me at all. I mean, at all. So I use a little bit of personal stuff at the opening and at the closing. And otherwise, I'm just not in the book except as the person, as, except as, you know, your guide to the information. That was one thing I was really interested in, um, in Sea People. It's such a big story that spans so many centuries. How do you even start to narrow down the research for a book like this when you're starting out? How do you figure out how you're going to frame a story like this um, that is such a big narrative? 
I had a couple of people that I considered my sort of guides. They're like my, you know, my spirit animal was Patrick Kirch. I don't think he would like to think of himself that way, but, <laughs> but he, he's a really, really fine, um, archaeologist from in the Pacific. And he has written many wonderful books. Many of them, he's, he's, he's just a very good writer for the general reader in addition to being a fantastic expert. But I read his books and I could see based on his books kind of the framework of the, of the bigger story. So I did have some secondary sources in archaeology, first of all, and then in some other fields that helped me understand which pieces of the big story I wanted. And then once I could identify what those pieces were, I could sort of drill down and just do the research in that sort of specific area. You know, like I knew I needed to understand about comparative linguistics and I I knew I needed to understand about radiocarbon dating. And, you know, so I I could sort of focus on specific problems and that that helped. You have been writing about this part of the world and researching it for a long time. Was there anything that was particularly new or surprising that you found in the research of this book? That's an interesting question. I mean, there were lots of things that I did not know when I started this book. The part of the book that I knew well already was the explorer history, which is the first part of the book. I mean, I'd already written about Captain Cook. I knew about contact. I knew some of these stories. And I I already had that clearly in mind. I also knew something about the sort of modern exploration reenactment stuff, although I had read about half of what I needed to read on that. But there were big sections in the middle of the book that I didn't really know much about. And there were things in there that surprised me. The history of kind of the MOA was something I got kind of interested in that I didn't know about. There, there were things in there, but, but it wasn't as though there was some kind of breakthrough, big con- conceptual thing that I didn't understand. It was more like there were a lot of details I didn't know. You, you touched on a couple of things um, that are central to, to the book that I really wanted to ask about. One of them being um, the story of Captain Pook. Captain Cook in Tupaya in the 18th century. Could you tell us just a little bit more about that that particular era and that particular voyage? Right. So, so Cook is super important in the history of the Pacific because he had three very long, well, comparatively speaking, long, but but very ex- sort of extensive voyages where he covered a large amount of area. And so Cook is really the first person in the European history of the Pacific to understand the geography of the Pacific. And so he's a pivotal character, no matter, you know, how you cut it, you just have to take into account the, the things that Cook sees and does. But the interesting piece of it for me in this story was that he he kind of becomes acquainted with, I wouldn't say friends, I don't think friend, befriending is quite right, but he becomes acquainted with a, an important Tahitian um, when, wh- whose name is Tupaya, who is a priest and navigator. And when Cook leaves Tahiti, this is his first stop on his first voyage, when he leaves Tahiti, Tupaya goes with him. And that's an amazing moment in the, in the history of the Pacific and also it's a pivotal point, a pivotal for the story in the book. One of the things I thought about with this book is so much of it is about these different ways of thinking, how European explorers had a very different frame of mind in approaching this question about Polynesia uh, from the way that Polynesians might have thought about themselves. And that was one of those places where it was really interesting to see these, these two separate ways of thinking come together. Right, right. The story of Tupaya is a perfect example of that because Tupaya has, for example, geographic knowledge about 
especially the middle of the Pacific, the, the islands of Polynesia, which are all in his mind. They're not written down anywhere. He holds them, you know, in memory. And he knows them. He knows that information in the form of probably of chance. So it's not graphically represented. It's not written anywhere. Whereas Cook is working with maps and charts and a whole cartography that is completely alien to Polynesians and is actually difficult to reconcile with the way that Polynesians think about geography and space and also about navigation. So a lot of the book, it's it's true in the early part of the book where you see Cook and Tupaya act working this out. And then it's true at the end of the book where with the experimental voyaging movement, again, you see sort of two different perspectives thinking about how to how to navigate and, and how to think about geography and space. And, and it was an interesting aspect of the story for me. So I'm glad you liked it or were interested in it. <laughs> Well, and that was another part I wanted to ask about was this, um, the experimental voyage um, in, in the 1970s. And if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Right. So so what happens is that uh, in the in the 20th century, some people begin to sort of question how they get interested in the problem of how Polynesians actually manage to navigate across these vast distances. It's kind of taken for granted up until the mid 20th century that they did it, but nobody really seems to know exactly how they did it. So people, a couple of people start getting interested in this problem and they go and they seek out uh, navigators in Micronesia and they read, they, they, they construct some replica canoes and they start to experiment with reenactment, reenacting the voyages that they think that people made in the, in the, in the old and old and olden days. And that, that it becomes actually a movement in Hawaii. The, uh, the famous canoe is called the Hokulea. So anyone who's from Hawaii knows the Hokulea. And, and that's a, been a, a movement which has also been connected with the whole Hawaiian Renaissance, you know, with the, the rejuvenation of the language and, you know, with hula and tattooing. And it's all part of, of kind of um, Polynesian culture. Early on in the book, there's some discussion about how very early explor- explorations in the Pacific were so influenced by geography, by trade winds, and that might may have contributed to why uh, people from other parts of the world were unaware of what the Polynesian Triangle was like. Um, and I kept thinking about that again later, as we do start to learn about those navigation systems used by the Polynesians, which were so much about the ability to read and understand the natural systems of the oceans in the world. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the the interesting thing about uh, the early European voyages, now, of course, the, the early European voyages, they were quite sporadic over several hundreds of years. But they when you look at them on a map, hundreds of years of them, you see that they're all following the same path. And they're doing that because they come around the bottom of South America, and then they can't go west, and then they go north, and then they go west as they get across the middle of the of near the equator. And that's because of the trade winds. They're, 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 they're sailing with the wind, basically. And so, of course, when people start thinking about Polynesians and how they migrated into the Pacific, you think, um, once it, it was realized that they came from the other side, from the Asian side, it meant you, you know, you had to, one had to realize that they were basically sailing into the wind. And that seems implausible. So the question of how they did this, uh, given that the predominant winds go from the east to the west, so against them, um, was, a, was something that people have thought a lot about. And, uh, and, and they didn't actually sail straight into them. They did all kinds of other things. And uh, I mean, I could talk about that forever. But but yeah, the, the 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 wind systems and the geography are hugely important to the story. Was there anything um, in your research that didn't make it into the book that you think you might want to write about in the future? 
Yes, there were quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. I got really obsessed with the missionaries, um, partly because I was very, very interested in the moment in the 19th century when writing comes to the Pacific. Because basically, you know, the difference between an oral culture and a culture with writing is really quite significant. And it's significant particularly in terms of the way that people encode knowledge. And so the knowledge itself, like the way that it's encoded is different depending on whether you're kind of remembering it all or writing it down. And and that just seemed like a hugely interesting subject to me. And I, I got, my editor would say to me, you know, periodically when I would give her some chapters and she'd say, you're in the weeds. And I would be particularly in the weeds in this area because I got really kind of deep into it and I had to cut a lot of it out. So so I feel like there's an area right there that I would love to write more about and and I'll just have to see. It's not, I think it's not most people's favorite part of the book, but I was really obsessed with it. <laughs> well, and it, it gets so much to the idea of these different modes of thinking and and how we do know what we know when you think about this written culture versus an oral culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, not being able to write things constrains what you know in some ways and probably writing constrains like what you remember, among other things. It certainly it, it influences the fact that, you know, people lose the capacity to really do huge acts of memorization. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are different and change. You you did quite a bit of book research for uh, for a book like this, but you also spent a period of time traveling in the Polynesian Triangle. What was that part of the research like, and did it significantly change any part of your approach to the story? The trip that we made was at the very, very beginning. I had a contract for the book. I had an idea about what the book would have in it. And the real reason that I wanted to make this trip um, was that I really needed to see some of the islands I had never seen. So I'd traveled across the Pacific a lot because I went to graduate school in Australia. So I'd gone back and forth, back and forth. And I'd been to quite a lot of islands, but there were places I'd never been. I didn't, I'd never been to what's known as a Makatea Island, which is a raised coral platform. I had never been on an atoll. You know, it was hugely important to me to go to an atoll because I just needed to understand what that meant physically, what it was like. And I was stunned by it. I thought it was amazing. So a lot of it had to do with the physical feeling of the places more than anything else so that I w felt confident in describing them because I never would want to write about a place that I hadn't been to. I didn't feel like that would work. So that was really what it was uh, mainly, yeah. Yeah, and you and you really do, that, that physical feel for place really does come across so well in the book. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, one of the things this book is doing is looking at how we know what we do what we do know at any particular moment in time. Um, and toward the end, you talk a little bit about the present day and um, the idea of, of DNA being one current scientific approach to asking questions about, about this region. It's, it's interesting to think about that in the context of this very long history of asking questions about the region. Um, where, where is the, the research on DNA now? And how do you think it fits into the history of all these questions about Polynesia? Um, that is an interesting and difficult question, and different kinds of different people would give different answers to it. I mean, the the reality of the DNA information in the Pacific is that most of what people have found, and there are two different categories. There's the DNA of living people, um, and then modern, you know, contemporary people, and then there's ancient DNA, which is the DNA from kind of old bones. Um, and they get, provide different kinds of information. The ancient DNA is very informative in terms of the 
the history of the migrations where you can get it, but it's very hard to get. Um, there isn't a lot of it. And also people are very sensitive about the bones of their ancestors. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult in many different ways, ethically tricky and also physically kind of hard because the, the stuff, the, the material doesn't survive well in the tropics. So there are all kinds of things there um, that I think have yet to be worked out. Um, most of the information that has emerged basically corroborates the theses or the theories that already existed based on, for example, archaeological and linguistic evidence. So it's been corroborative primarily in the beginning and uh, not really sort of the breakthrough piece of information that you might think it would be. But that may still, you know, we're so, we're just, the other thing about it is that I was writing about the DNA, that research, and, you know, like as I was writing, papers were being published. So it's literally happening, you know, as I was going to press. So there's no way I could be really current with it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's interesting just in terms of thinking about this era being part of that long history of, exactly. of asking these questions. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the other thing about it that's kind of interesting is that I was was very interested in some of the early kind of biometric work that was done in the 1920s and um, in an era where, you know, people are very sensitive about that kind of anthropometric research because it was sort of in a period of, you, you know, that was known for eugenics, among other things. So it's kind of people don't like it very much but the by there's you know this is again by using biology in the dna so it's you know it's it's got some complicated aspects the last thing i wanted to ask you about is um what is it that you're working on now do you have a new project in the works or thinking about a new book yet hmm. um i am thinking about certain kinds of things i have a huge stack of books about writing and the history of writing. I have a huge stack of books about missionaries because I'm kind of curious yeah, about them too. Um, I also, uh, I have some other ideas that were, I, you know, I don't really have a book project yet. I, I wish I did, but I don't really have the kind of thing that I think I can go to my agent and say, you know, this is a no-brainer, which is what I want. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a nice thing to have, but yeah. it's nice to spend some time exploring too. Yeah, it took me quite a long time. And I'm slow. I'm a slow writer, and it takes me a long time. But it takes me a couple of years between projects. So it, I think it's still a little bit early days. I've done a lot of this kind of book work, and I and I uh, are you know talking about it. So I'm not quite ready to leave this one behind yet. Yeah. Well, whatever it is that comes next, we're looking forward to it. Um, thank you so much for spending some time talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It was very nice. That's all for this episode of Mason Out Loud. You can find more episodes of the podcast, including interviews with other writers on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and read on.